2: That's
1: the second time it's gone oh. they on. They never got home. They never got home. They never got home. Those 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 boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that,
2: really. Oh, you can laugh. i the World Cup.
1: I'm a little bit of an idealist.
0: But having said that, I want to be like me.
2: You don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you know what you're talking about. I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you oh, now. Come down
3: to field and we'll
2: see them. What you doing down here, you're showing me, man.
0: <laughs> this is second captain's football at the Irish Times. We're just five or six games, or maybe even eight games from the end of the season if you're Sunderland. Uh, looks like a solution may be at hand to one of the big problems in Irish football. That's the absence of any of our players in the Champions League. Well, Celtic is still one route in there, but in England, no players end up at the very top clubs anymore, which means we've no experience playing regularly in the pressurised world of the Champions League, resulting, I think, Ken, I'm not overstating, in a feeling of inferiority when we play teams like Spain and Germany, maybe even Austria. You see a guy like David Alaba Mm. banging goals in against you. (laughs) That guy plays Champions League. He's pretty good. But the solution to all this... Just play for Everton. Just ride in Everton slipstream, much yeah. like Lance Armstrong being dragged to a Tour de France, one of his many Tour de France victories. Well, let's not go too far down the Lance Armstrong analogy, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah,
3: you got to get in there. Um, it's clear none of the top clubs want Irish players, so the solution is to colonize a club <laughs> just below that level and then take them into the Champions League. Yeah, and uh, it's great. It's, it's working out. It's working out pretty well for Everton at the moment. Um, I mean, it is. It is. I mean, we we were speaking to Niall Quinn last week, Owen, uh, about this very issue, you know, the absence of Irish players in the Champions League. Well, when I say absence, Anthony Stokes was in the Champions League um, before Christmas, but then he got knocked out and that was it. And before then, it's really only McGeady, you know, with Spartak, who was who was regular in there. Probably
0: Gibson before that. Gibson,
3: before he joined Everton, you know, and never really, although he did score in a semi-final of the Champions League, I suppose, Darren Gibson. <laughs> That's pretty uh, good. Uh, as did as did John O'Shea, come to think of it, uh, against Arsenal at that time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Quinn's point was that the we've now reached the point where the top clubs in England don't actually trust the system here. They don't trust that players who emerge from it are going to be good enough. Mm-hmm. They don't have that belief that they used to have um, 20 years ago that you know, the best Irish players would be good enough to play for the best English clubs. Partly, it has to do with the increase in standards across the board. You know, the globalisation of the sport, bringing in the um, bringing in players from a much wider uh, catchment area of countries. I mean, the catchment area is now effectively the world, as opposed to, you know, Ireland and Britain, yeah. with which it used to be. Um, but partly, it, it also has to do with the fact that other uh, countries... Uh, have greater credibility I mean Quinn's example was Belgium you know he said you know talked about the process of signing Seaman Mignolet and said that it was such a that the whole experience with Mignolet impressed him so much you know they eventually sold Mignolet but if, if they're going looking for another player are they going to go to Belgium are they going to go to Ireland there's really only one
0: they said Mignolet arrived fully formed as in he was 17, whatever age he was. 18, his, yeah. Yeah, his 18. His big concern was not the money. I'm sure he was getting paid fine, but when can I finish my education? I want to finish my education. I want to do it straight away. I don't want to drift at all. And Quinn was flabbergasted by that. He said that just does not that's not, how English footballers at that age usually think about it. It's not how Irish footballers going over usually think about it. And also, you can see, uh, this isn't to judge 16-year-old Irish lads. If I was 16, I was heading over, being told I could be a Premier League footballer. I don't know if I, I be, would be too worried about doing my leaving cert or whatever it would be. I'd be so no, excited.
3: you don't want, I suppose what's in the back of your mind is you don't want to be there saying, uh, by the way, I, I want to make sure I finish my education, and then go, well... In that case, you cut. <laughs> you know, you just don't want to uh, put anything Sorry, in the way of your dream. <laughs> First of
0: all, you're not very good at football. Yeah. And secondly, yeah, you're you even a bit of a problem child. So Maybe you,
3: you will be well advised to finish your schooling because, frankly, you have no future in the game. You, you don't have the talent. Mm-hmm. You cut. Maybe that, look, you know, that, that's what that, that fear is in the back of people's minds. But Mindy, I obviously thought, I can do both. Yeah. And why not?
0: Uh, we're going to be talking about Everton's surge for the Champions League with Jonathan Wilson in a little while and uh, unfortunately a bad, bad weekend for former Irish international Chris Hewton, sacked as Norwich manager. We'll chat to Miguel Delaney about that, but let's kick things off with the report on sport.
3: So I guess we've really got to start with uh, Colemania at Goodison Park. Uh, Seamus Coleman putting on a display of ball juggling, the like of which I haven't seen against Arsenal since Nanny did the same thing. Um, I think on that occasion one of the Arsenal players tried to chase Nani around and kick him for what he was doing Um, uh, this was at Old Trafford remember Old Trafford Man United beat Arsenal in the cup maybe 2008, 2009 that sort of time and Nani did a little bit of juggling of the ball uh, well with Manchester United at a commanding position and Arsenal didn't really like that but nobody seemed to respond to Coleman doing it it was fine it was like oh okay So you are going to humiliate us like that as well? Fair enough. We probably deserve it. We haven't been good enough again. Uh, (laughs) This seems to be the attitude coursing
0: through Arsenal's uh, veins at the moment. Um, Could you imagine Seamus Cohen bursting through like that with Patrick Vieira in the Arsenal midfield? Petit, even. Any of of those kind of guys. Even Ray Parler, I would say, would be looking. Oh,
3: especially Ray Parler. Maybe
0: especially Ray Parler. Don't know if they'd be too happy to see or if they'd even allowed the the move to mind you, there was kind of nobody in his way. It was that not the point that he he? I think, was it a header that he started with? Maybe it was a little volley. It was starter. a, he, it was a header, header,
3: first of all, to get the ball away from, I think, Monorail. But That's then he right. ran after it. And I don't know, maybe the way the ball fell from, it was just it uh, juggling sense. it was the yeah. easiest thing to do. If you or?
0: look at every single juggle, every single volley, each of them made sense in their own way. It just started to look a little bit show-offy after about yeah. three. Well,
3: after he'd, he'd run up the pitch, uh, leaving Arsenal's fullback. I wonder what he's
0: thinking in his head. You know, the real playground kind of thought, I can score here every kid has played football volleyed it once or twice and thought I can go the whole length of this pitch and volley this in this will be amazing
3: uh, well he, he didn't he didn't ultimately try that uh, although I kind of wish that he had um, he is obviously playing with a lot of confidence now though like everybody in Everton uh, Roberto Martinez uh, very happy and he sees this in terms of a victory for positive thinking he says in terms of satisfaction you get as much it's as good as you can get uh, talks about the performance being uh, strong in every way and praised every pretty much aspect of it uh, but he says what's important is when you're a team you have to have an aim it can be an easy aim or you can reach high and try to have a dream to follow when it was Swansea it was to get into Premier League at Wigan it was to get into Europe and at a club with the heritage of Everton it is to get into the Champions League there's still a long way to go Arsenal from now have 15 points to fight for it's going to be a really tough fight um yeah, but Arsenal, Arsenal may have 15 points to play for. And, uh, you know, when you look at Arsenal's games, they have proven adept depth at, at putting away this this type of game. I mean, if you look at what they've got at home to West Ham, away to Hull, at home to Newcastle, who are dire at the moment, um, at home to West Brom, another relegation threatened team, and away to Norwich. They're the kinds of teams Arsenal that usually beat. Um, the problem that they've had this season is losing their big games. You know, losing away to Man United, Man City, uh, Liverpool, Everton. That's that's really where their season has gone off the rails. They didn't
0: even need to necessarily win all those games if they could. It was one of those seasons if they could have held their own. Mm-hmm. As you're saying, they'd be looking at the final few matches thinking, well, run here. We can go unbeaten now and possibly win this thing, or at least. Yeah. It's all a little bit grim for um,
3: No, yeah. So, so, I mean, and, and Arsene Wenger just is saying like a broken record, you know. no, uh, Apparently no real idea of what's going wrong. Um, you know, uh, he says, was there like a fight? You could say that. Uh, we have to analyse it and come back with a different attitude so this is the same thing that he says after every, every time that they that they lose a game like this with more personality and stronger challenges we have to go back to basics our performance was not convincing not defensively not offensively everyone were better they deserved to win that's a slightly unusual thing to hear Arsene Wenger saying because he usually finds some way to um, to make it out as though the results if it goes against Arsenal was unfair but on this occasion he couldn't do that it yeah. was too it was too emphatic um, and now Everton are in a position where if they win their matches they do have much tougher matches they've got uh, they've got Manchester City at home they've got Manchester United at home and um, then again playing the way that they are you wouldn't uh, necessarily back against them uh, they do traditionally of course beat Manchester City at least that was what they used to do when David Moyes was the manager so that's one part of the Moyes legacy one part among many of the rich legacy that David Moyes has left to Everton that uh,
0: they'll be and hoping something to, I ask to keep up. Jonathan Wilson, about a little bit later on, how we should judge David Moyes and what he and what he has left.
3: I mean, yeah, and, and you wonder if Arsenal were to make a change because you do now begin to sense this is this is getting to the point where they have to seriously think about it. I mean, um, looking at Arsblog uh, today, Arsblog is pretty much the biggest Arsenal, um, you know, Arsenal-focused site. Um, and uh, what Andrew Megan writes today is the issue is whether or not this board has the ability to replace him properly I worry that they are so invested in him almost reliant on him that his departure would leave them in a place they don't have the expertise to get out of properly I don't say that to avoid the thought of a new manager but it's got to be a consideration but he makes the point Goodison Park on April 6th 2014 will go down as a kind of watershed moment in Arsenal's history evidence that the departure of a long-standing manager doesn't have to go the way of things in Manchester it can invigorate and revitalize the club and its players. So obviously Moyes was at Everton for 12 years. Martinez comes in and things are going great. Yeah. Nobody's missing David Moyes. Um you know obviously didn't go quite so well at Manchester but you do wonder uh, I first the, the the initial point there is who hires the replacement for Arsene Wenger. You know, who who at Arsenal has, has got the knowledge? Who at Arsenal really has the, the deep sort of football expertise to... I
0: think I know what you're, what you're hinting at here, Ken. Arsene Wenger is the man with well, that he- knowledge. And we see the issues that arise when a manager chooses a successor, as mm. has happened there. Especially when
3: he doesn't actually want to leave the job. <laughs> you're asking me to hire a successor for even though I don't want to leave. Um, you know, they, they, they have been deferring to him on all such matters. Uh, and the club, you know, has... Uh, you know, I'm not sure, Danny Feisman, for instance, the, who, who used to be a, a major shareholder at Arsenal and passed away a couple of years ago, you know, he was a, he was a diamond dealer. Uh, he knew a lot about the diamond business. Did he know a lot about the football business? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just my, my sort of bias, you know, that the, the idea that someone who's grown up in the city, you know, following the club all their lives, following the league all their lives, is likely to know more about it than Stanley Kroenke. Mm-hmm. Who bought Arsenal? I think because he spotted a commercial possibility. You know, certainly David Dean uh, was somebody who knew the football business quite well. He's not involved there anymore. I don't know if they necessarily have the have the knowledge. I mean, it's the same problem that Manchester United had in a way. You know, if, if you're the Glazers, who are you going to? Who, who, what are you going to do? David Gill was also leaving his job. You know, are the Glazers going to pick somebody, or are they going to look to Sir Alex Ferguson and say,
0: any ideas? And that's ultimately what they did. Is there not something, are there not some kind, con- is there a middle ground there? For example, Bobby Charlton, you know? Mm. I'm sure there are other people involved in Manchester United who do know about football and have been mm. involved. I, just, I don't buy that, that idea. At that, the decision-making uh, it, level, though. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't buy the idea that it, it goes from Malcolm Glazer, mm. well, or, or one of the sons, to Alex Ferguson, and there's no, and so it's either somebody who's only just come into football in the last couple of years, or the former manager. There's nobody else at that club that can have a say. There's no chief executive, other no oh, board there,
3: members. There, there may well, well, there, there was a chief executive in fairness and David Gill, but he, unfortunately for Manchester United, decided to leave at just the same time as Alex Ferguson. That didn't work out no. well for them. That was that was very unfortunate that that happened at the same time. Um, I don't know if David Gill necessarily agreed with that. With had the same. Outlook on the succession question as Alex Ferguson obviously had, but we can see whose authority ultimately won out in the end. Narch
0: City have shown a way to expedite the process of appointing a new manager. Um, Chris Hewton gone over the weekend and their new man's already in. Yes, Neil Adams, the youth team,
3: uh, or youth cup winning coach. Um, You know, and they, uh, I just don't understand what took them so long to do this uh, because They've been talking about this and sort of undermining Chris Hughton for a long time. And really, once the the, the chairman uh, David Mc, Mc, uh, the chief executive rather David McNally said a few weeks ago, "Well, of course we'd be crazy not to be looking at possible replacements." You can't say something like that um, and then not act. You know, if you're going to undermine your manager, if you're going to if you're going to um, effectively co- corrode his authority by publicly casting doubt on whether you think he's the right man and announcing to the world that you're looking for his replacement, yeah. then you probably should do something. You know, you probably should, if, if you've decided that's what you're going to do and then told everyone about it, do it. Mm. You know? What was he afraid of? Was he afraid that, oh, I'm not sure, Ooh, is it the right decision? You know, uh, I'm, uh, maybe I'll give it a few more games. No. I mean, you've, you've already, you've, you've already effectively changed the situation by intervening, by making this public comment. Yeah. You know the results shouldn't affect it. You know, so what if you win a game? I mean, <laughs> to a large extent, these football matches are are random. You know, the the outcome is dictated by random chance to 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 an extent. If you are convinced that Hutton isn't the man, then do something.
0: Yeah, about it's it. hard to argue with that. I, see, I I feel a certain amount of sympathy for Chris Hutton in that he does. This is something we've talked about uh, with with Norwich, I think, and certainly other clubs. There are certain ideas that they. I don't want to say how it is above their station. That sounds unbelievably pompous. Mm. had it spewed I'm out of my mouth there, again, But I, I don't know what Norwich's aims are. I would have thought Norwich, a club of their size, just being in the Premier League is a success. Mm. And at the moment, Houghton has them four points outside the relegation zone. So if they were to continue with that sort of form, they would just about, well, on paper, they would just about um, scrape uh, a place in the Premier League for next year. But looking at the fixtures they have left you start seeing the problems
3: but you know in the age of Roberto Martinez suddenly uh, just staying in the Premier League doesn't sound like such a big dream I mean why does our dream that's like going to bed on and having a dream where you wake up get up uh, you know have a shower put on your clothes and your shoes head out the door get on the bus go to work probably in the bank come home make your tea watch a bit of telly and go to bed and then that's when you wake up and you think to yourself was that my dream? Was that actually the dream that I've just had was a perfectly boring ordinary day?
0: That is a dream for lots of people.
3: Yeah I suppose. Richie
0: Sadler talked about this saying that when he was playing football everything was all this excitement and he thought this is life you know living mm. for a result and now he's thinking well I just want to have a nice day. L- yeah. Like that, Ken, and then just go to bed at the Stability. end. Stability.
3: Well, that's what maybe what Chris Hewton should have said if he went into David McMalley and said, look, your problem is... <laughs> You're dreaming you, too big. You want too much, yeah. You know, the Buddha taught us that the only way to achieve liberation, you know, is to... It, to, to we're, we're all looking for peace, right? You want peace, I want peace. You know, then stop craving for things you can't have. Stop lusting after Premier League position increased prize money, Europe. You know, you ever heard the story of the fisherman? You know, that's what Christy just said. Yeah. You know the story of the fisherman?
0: Oh, me? Yeah. You talked about this quite recently.
3: Ah, come on. Now, I, You know, you got to bring up the story of the fisherman. It's every morning when I wake up and I think about that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, there's a guy walking along, sees a, you know, in the countryside, or sees a fisherman there, uh, lazing in his boat, stunning himself boat is like pulled up on the jetty or whatever and the the guy's looking at his watch he's like it's 11 o'clock you know what are you doing get out there and fish i thought you're supposed to be a fisherman and the fisherman's like well you know uh, i actually already been out and caught a couple of fish today so i'm done and the guy says well you still got all day look at this beautiful day the sun is shining uh the the breeze is cool across the water you can go out there and fish and get, bring a lot more fish back today if you just get out there. And the fisherman said, well, why would I want to do that? And he goes, well, because then you'd have a you'd have a ton of fish, you'd have a, you'd have a surplus, you could go to the market, you could sell the fish, the extra fish that you didn't need to eat. And the fisherman's like, yeah, and then what? And he goes, well, then, you know, you'd, ha- you'd have a lot of extra money. You could buy another boat, you could hire someone to go out with you, you could go out and keep fishing, you know, the two of you, catch two times as much, four times as much. And the fisherman's like, well... You know what would I do then? And the guy says, "Well, I mean, you know, you'd eventually have a fishing fleet. You could have a canning factory. You could have a whole integrated, vertically integrated operation. You know, you could be, a, you could be a billionaire." And the guy says, "Well, what would I do then?" He goes, "Well, then you could just sit around and, you know, basically do nothing." And the guy, the fisherman's like, "Well, you know, that's pretty much what I've been, what I'm doing right now." So, uh, so the guy thinks, "Oh, right, I see." Now maybe Chris Hutton could have taken that line. With David Look, are we not all happy here? Do we not all sort of... Fishy. We get out there, we run around in the fresh air, play football, sweat, shower, feel great. Why do we always have to want that little bit more? But of course, McNally's probably looking across at Martinez and thinking, well, if this guy can dream big. And Rogers, Brendan Rogers—is there a, is there a dreamier uh, dreamer than Brendan Rogers the dream. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I mean, we've been talking about the... Irish colony at Everton. But what about Rogers? A man from the island of Ireland.
0: Oh, there were, I think there were a couple of articles over the weekend about his Irish background.
3: Oh, I think the closer Brendan Rogers gets to that Premier League title, <laughs> the more Irish he becomes, the greener the glow of Irishness uh, from the man from the part of Ireland which is closest to Scotland. Uh, he would be the first uh, manager from the island of Ireland. Since Bob Kyle, in, I think, 1913, to win the English League.
0: It's pretty impressive.
3: Yeah. No no. Uh, uh, a manager from the Republic of Ireland is everyone. No manager
0: from Wales, either. I've read that he wasn't a great herder, Brendan Rogers, but I do think that it doesn't sound like he was too interested in hurling. It really doesn't. He sort of ended up having to hurl a couple of times. Yeah,
3: I suppose, as everyone did. I mean, even I had to hurl a couple of times. I mean most people don't don't seem to take to it. it, it hurling really, do they? It's a, it's a dangerous game for the fingers. It's scary. The fingers and the teeth are instinctively shy away from hurling. You've got to overcome that. Uh, you
0: would've been wearing a helmet
3: presumably. Uh
0: you should have been wearing a not helmet. In those, not in those not those days. Mm, I you, certainly wore certainly wore a helmet uh, in my brief hurling career uh, uh, up to 13 years of age. Yeah. Well, and that I found it quite uncomfortable. The helmet didn't help matters when I tried to. It did help matters in terms of you know not getting any serious injuries, but kind of bouncing up and down on you. That visor is slightly in your peripheral vision. Yeah,
3: I I didn't like. Wouldn't have. Wouldn't have liked that restriction on my peripheral peripheral vision because that's that's really where you get your edge, isn't it, (laughs) in the the, the games? You know, being able to to see that. So, uh, Brendan Rodgers. Well, look, Liverpool uh, again, uh, winning again with a couple of. Penalties by Stephen Gerrard, bringing to twelve uh, the total of penalties that they've been awarded this season, and uh, well, they've scored ten of those. Um, it's not actually a, it's not that unusual a total. I mean, usually the team um, with the most penalties. I mean, Chelsea got twelve the season that they won the league in twenty ten. They were also the record uh, record scorers in the league that time. And Liverpool have got ninety goals so far, which is a huge total. Um, still have a small chance of maybe breaking Chelsea's record you know Manchester United 11 in 2012 Um, Arsenal had 10 in 2007 you know it's a kind of uh, Crystal Palace bizarrely had 12 penalties (laughs) given to them in 2005 Uh, that was uh, the season when Andy Johnson set a a record I think of 11 penalties he was a uh, he was very good at winning and scoring penalty kicks uh, Steven Gerrard well Liverpool have split up the task a little bit it's Luis Suarez who wins these penalties uh, as he did again yesterday and Steven Gerrard usually who scores even them.
0: the one he missed against Man United was a decent effort he said himself he got a bit cocky yeah I didn't see why that, why that one was any cockier than any other ones he took it looked like a standard whip it into the bottom corner job he didn't Panenka it
3: no and actually, I mean if, if imagine Suarez have been taking these penalties I mean if he'd scored you know nine they has scored the ten, I think. Uh, I'm not sure actually if he scored every single one of Liverpool's penalties, but they have they have scored. The team has scored ten. Yeah, so even
0: if you are add seven or eight to Suarez's tally, that'd be pretty good. Yeah,
3: you, then he would really be looking at that European uh, golden shoe. But um, Rodgers, uh, uh, w- there was a dispute over the penalty. I actually was surprised by this because I I, I was watching this match on TV. Gary Neville was uh, was saying, "Oh, this is a, the referees having an absolute shocker," because the referee had given a uh, somewhat dodgy goal to West Ham, in which Andy Carroll um, had risen at a corner kick and <laughs> swung his arm around and struck Seaman Minyule in the head. Quite <laughs> like never seen, I've rarely seen something like this happen. And knocked the ball out of his hands. Uh, Mignolet's face doing that sort of boxer thing as Carroll's um, very long arms sort of swung around and struck him in the head, um, and dropped the ball and. Demel knocked it in and the referee gave the goal and then there was this farcical situation where West Ham played the replay or the, the, up to, the screens at Upton Park showed the replays uh, complete with Andy Carroll um, striking Mignolet and all the Liverpool players are standing there pointing at the screen shouting look at, it, look at the replay and the uh, referee is pretending not to notice um, but then uh, the penalty that was given to Liverpool Neville seems to be of the opinion of the, I, I couldn't understand why it wasn't, why he didn't think it was a penalty I mean, Flanagan touches the ball first. The goalkeeper then touches the ball, Adrian, and then Adrian brings Flanagan down. If he doesn't bring him down, then Flanagan has got a pretty simple task to square the ball across an open yeah, goal or even score.
0: Yeah. What? A, I, when I first when I watched the first replay, I was convinced it wasn't a penalty because he quite clearly. So if people haven't seen it. We're talking about a goalkeeper coming out to his own right. If you can picture that the, with the yeah. with Flanagan. Trying to go around him. Flanagan's kind of going to the left of the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper swings his right hand around and touches the ball with it. Mm. Flanagan continues on for a split second. And then for some inexplicable reason, the goalkeeper brings his left hand around and he actually trips him with his trailing hand. But quite deliberately, I thought. Mm,
3: it was strange.
0: So, yeah, so the, the, the first contact actually was with the ball, but then... the first Well, the,
3: the first contact was Flanagan with the ball. And then the goalkeeper touched the ball. Yeah. And then the goalkeeper... Yeah, there so I thought that was it it
0: was almost like a double movement by the by the uh, by the keeper
3: yeah um, anyway so so they continue to lead the league and next uh, week it's going to be Man City and Anfield for what looks like a really uh, well it's obviously going to be a very important game just to get some Tim Sherwood uh, quotes oh, yeah,
0: before you wrap up this
3: um, he, he addressed the rumours from a couple of weeks ago that he'd uh, punched one of the Spurs players in the dressing room.
0: Oh, is that the rumor? I just thought it was a bust-up.
3: No, the rumor was that he punched someone in. Um, Sherwood says, I was getting family and friends texting me saying, why did you do it? They didn't say, did you? It was all, who did you hit? Who did you hit? The players know I want the best for the club. That helps them out because it means I want the best for them. I'm not going to suffer fools, though. That's the way I manage, says <laughs> Sherwood. I love, I love the way Tim Sherwood is always talking. About his style of management, even though he's only been managing for like a few weeks, um, he says. Uh, but he he then attacked uh, or addressed this thing about well, you shouldn't have criticised your players, uh, you know when he when he was saying not enough gap, and uh, and he says I didn't have any hidden agenda. I just felt the players need to be accountable. If Mourinho does it, it's right. If I do it, it's wrong because I'm inexperienced and Mourinho's the best manager we've ever seen, supposedly. Now. He's talking about Mourinho criticising his strikers over the last year. I don't think that that has been seen as a good thing. I don't think that's been seen widely as, well, there's Mourinho once again doing the right thing. Mm. I think has, everyone has been a bit puzzled by that. Number one, why is Mourinho attacking players he still has to use? You know, What's the point of talking about how your players don't have any balls when they're the only players you've got? You know, Is he trying to point the finger of blame? Uh, at someone else? Is he sensing that this season isn't going to work out? Is he trying to hang the blame on somebody else? You know, I think Mourinho has been doing that. Sherwood says, oh, apparently when he does, it's the right thing. Mourinho, amazingly, after uh, Chelsea's game in the weekend, called out a Sky cameraman who went out on the pitch. You know, as a player, you know the way Sky always have cameras on the pitch just as the match is about to kick off. This particular cameraman walked all the way around Fernando Torres, focused on his head, you know? Tars is there trying to ignore the camera, just staring ahead, trying to trying to look steely. And the camera walked all the way around. Mourinho has a go at this cameraman after. Oh, what do you think you're doing? I think it's disgusting what you do. You know, we didn't need to do that. Whose fault is it that he's doing that? Yeah. Everybody knows that Mourinho's the one who's put... When, when Tars is standing there, this, this cameraman is walking 360 degrees around me. You know, is he thinking this has nothing to do with me? He knows exactly. Just to finish up in Sherwood, though... Mm-hmm. Uh, Whatever decisions you make in this game, only stand up if you win. If Mourinho doesn't go on to win anything at Chelsea, he's going to be wrong for saying what he did. It's one stage of time. I got six cup finals between now and the end of the season. Uh, but he goes on to say, I'm realistic to know it's Tottenham. You're under the spotlight no matter what you do. You got a rookie manager coming in here who won the first eight games or whatever it was. And everyone thinks it's easy. Who won the first eight games, he says. He didn't win the first eight games. I mean, he, he won five out of the first eight, which isn't bad. But that's if you don't count the two defeats
0: We're going into the
3: joke-and-ear route of self-promotion. It's a little bit... Three-time manager of the year. Or whatever it was. If you can just put in that qualifier whenever you're making an claim about your past achievements. But he says, uh, talking about this thing, another thing that he had to address was was the sitting in the stand at Anfield rather than down by the sideline. And the the fans are saying, where is our manager? And he says, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. (laughs) I've never heard anyone claim that a manager is damned if he does stand on the touchline trying to manage the team If Mourinho sits up there, he's fine <laughs> If Nigel Pearson and Leicester sat up there all season, they've been promoted to the Premier League, but I will be on the touchline on Monday and I'll be knocking out as many people as I can. I've had a lot of time to prepare this week Says <laughs> Tim <laughs> so, so sure That's
0: would. the end of Kennedy's report on sport Hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air
2: generated by <laughs> in a furious blast of temper <laughs> The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer. I think at David Beckham. I don't know he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. <laughs> uh, in the is that right? No, no, no,
0: no, 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 no. Let's talk more about Everton. Now we're joined by Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and Alex Ferguson has been taking quite a bit of criticism for the setup that he bequeathed to David Moyes at Manchester United this season. If we're going to apply that kind of logic, shouldn't Moyes be getting huge credit for what he left for Roberto Martinez?
2: Yeah, I think up to a point he should. I mean, you sort of get the impression, and I think you often see this with, with the development of clubs, that they reach a certain point under a particular manager. And then I guess because they've been there so long and they've seen what works, they, they become quite conservative. They go back to, to what they know. And so maybe there's a sense that Moyes could have gone further. I mean, it, it's incredibly harsh to criticise him for that because you you think of a position they were in when he took over. Um, and, and, yeah, I think there was a sense even up to a couple of years ago that their first job every season was to avoid relegation, and then see what happened after that. Well, Martinez seems to have arrived with no sort of preconceptions. That was even the possibility, and of course he has. You know, he has strengthened the squad, bringing in Lukaku, um, bringing in Gareth Barry at the back of midfield. I think he's had a really good season. James McCarthy. So we've actually spent money on uh, Delafeu coming in on loan as well. So yeah, I think there's a combination of things, but yeah, certainly part of their development this season has been Martinez coming in with an open mind, being prepared to take more risks but building on the on the platform that was already there
3: for him. Well, when you say building on the platform, um, what exactly are we talking about here because I think you wrote a comparison of uh, Martinez and or rather Everton under Martinez and Everton last season under Moyes. And maybe it wasn't quite as different as people think. I mean, there are obviously some uh, differences. It looks like they're going to get more points than they ever got under Moyes. It looks like they're going to score more goals than they ever scored under Moyes, but when you look a little bit deeper, you know, they're still the same team.
2: Well, I mean, I think they, they play significantly um, you know, less direct football. I think they're, they're less conservative in approach. I think what you have to give Moyes credit for is, is building that back four. Now, I know John Stones has come in, which obviously is, has, um, has helped this season. But that was a very stable back unit with, with Tim Howard, then with Coleman and Baines, um, Distan and um, Heitinger in the middle. Uh, so, you know, he, he did leave them that back four, which, OK, has, has been developed and Heitinger has now left. But... That, that basis was there, he, he got that right and you, if you can trust your defence it makes everything a lot easier that you can then start fiddling around up the pitch and the consequences that goes wrong there aren't quite as, as dire, I mean, but I think that you know, particularly the, the Howard Distan axis I think is, is vitally important to them yeah.
3: What about the fact that they've also got Lukaku um, scoring the type of goal that he did uh, the second goal yesterday, I mean you know, Arsenal really didn't know what to do with him and when he plays well in a game he usually scores and has a major impact um, Chelsea letting him go there looks like a major mistake by Jose Mourinho
2: Yeah it does I mean it's a really baffling thing um, and Mourinho I think basically after that Super Cup final against Bayern when he, when he didn't play well when he missed the penalty in the shootout that seems to have been enough for Mourinho he just, just wrote him off after that so, I mean, Do you really
3: think that was that was it, John? Because I mean, I, I mean that okay. That's certainly what happened chronologically. There's no doubt that he left after that happened. But would Mourinho really have decided? Okay, you know, I can't. You know, I don't think this guy is going to be part of my plans on the basis of missing a penalty like that. That seems insanely um, sort of judgmental and self defeating way for a manager to carry on.
2: Yeah, he does. I agree entirely, and, and um, yeah. I, that that is how it appears. I, I I find it difficult to believe it's just that. I think there must have been other things behind the scenes. I think some of Lukaku's comments since then have suggested that you know, he and Marina didn't see eye to eye. But it does seem baffling when you look at the forwards Chelsea have got. You know, it's not like you know, it's not like he was competing with Drogba at his best or Falcao or, or, or something like that. You know, the fact that they've got an ageing Eto, a misfiring Torres and Demba Ba, who I mean, seems essentially to have disappeared. Yeah, I, I can't believe they wouldn't have been better with Lukaku there. I'm not even sure that Lukaku's the type of player, given the stages out in his career, when he'd have been expecting first-team football. I think you could have you know, played him 10 or 15 league games, brought him off the bench, and even then, they'd have got far more out of him than than, than what they've got at the moment.
3: Well, Lukaku talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I mean, Jose Mourinho, I think... This, this, this Lukaku question kept coming up from Mourinho a couple of months back, and he... Um, said, and, and he said, why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask him why he's still there and why he's at Everton and not here? And it seemed to be, he, he seemed to be hinting at something having gone on. It, w- it wasn't just a cut and dried case of I, Joseph Mourinho, have made a mistake because it never is. Um, Lukaku said that he, had played really well at West Brom, didn't want to essentially sit on the bench because how do you get better at his age if you're just going to sit on the bench? He needs to, he wants to play a lot of games and be like uh, Drogba. Drogba is a player he always refers to because he he loves Didier Drogba. Drogba is his idol. But Drogba said something about uh, Lukaku a little while ago. He said Lukaku is a much better player than I am than I was at that age. When I was his age, I was at the uh, Mans. The Mans was the little team in France. Um, that Drogba was playing at. I wonder, though, maybe if that's the right type of club for a player at 20 years old. I mean, I don't mean to compare Everton at all to Le Mans, but maybe he's better off playing for a club like Everton at this stage of his career than he is at Chelsea. Even if you're the other strikers at Chelsea aren't that good, you're still expected to score, to win every game, and at this stage of his career, maybe Everton is is at the appropriate stage for him.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a truth to that, and I think we've seen plenty of players who've, who've suffered by being stockpiled, essentially, uh, I mean you, you look at what what happened to Daniel Serridge at Chelsea just not playing and, and suddenly given his opportunity, he's exploded in the last last well year and a bit. Um and I, you are right actually when you're thinking back that even when he was at West Brom, Lukaku kept saying, Yeah, I want to be playing, I want to be playing first team football and, and maybe you know, maybe we we're uh, looking at this with too much hindsight that yeah, you know, it seems obvious now that if Lukaku had been at Chelsea he would have played and maybe at the beginning of the season you sort of thought, well, you know, Torres and Eto'o and, and Bar." He's going to be the fourth out of those four. And so maybe he did make demands that Mourinho thought were unrealistic uh, in terms of of playing time. Um, Maybe Mourinho didn't even like the fact that that he broached it. If he did broach it with him directly. Um, So, I mean, that's a logical place to assume that the point of conflict was. But I still kind of think if Mourinho had said to him, look, I saw you last season. I think you're very talented. You'll probably get 10 or 15 starts, maybe more. I can't believe Lukaku wouldn't have thought, you know, that's, that's actually kind of good enough and I'll get a run out in the Champions League and I'll test myself there. And that, you know, that that um, is a stepping stone to becoming a first choice at, at a club like Chelsea. Jonathan,
0: the football that is being played and the manner of it is encouraging from an Irish point of view given that some of our key players are at Everton these days. I heard Joey Barton speaking to Clive Woodward on BBC Radio 5 Live last week and he made the point that he feels a young player players are obsessed with signing for a certain club, whatever the reason is, whether it's money or whether it's uh, the prestige of the club. Whereas he thinks that as a young player, you should think more about the manager you're signing for. And if you sign for a really good manager at a young age, he takes a liking to you. He will then take you elsewhere and he'll make your career as opposed to being reliant on, on the club. In he Actually, I think he name-checked McCarthy as being somebody who has done that. He's gone with Roberto Martinez and now been taken to Everton. Is Martinez... Do you think he's going to be very good for the development of these kind of players?
2: Yeah, I think he is, and I mean, you saw uh, after Lukaku scored, the fact he went straight to Martinez and celebrated with him rather than any of his teammates suggests you know the closeness of their bond. And I think what was interesting was how Lukaku was was deployed on on, on Sunday. The fact that he, he started on the right of, of the front three, so he, he was cutting in, he was attacking that um, obvious weakness between Vermaelen and um, uh, Monreal. Uh, so the fact that Martinez uh, sort of micromanager's games. I think that's one of the things that sets him apart from Wenger and one of the issues Wenger's having, that more and more managers do micromanage and he tends to you send know, out the same shape of the team every week. But uh, in terms of the relationship between Martinez and the players, the fact that they can see that working, they can see his thought processes, he, he appears pretty good at explaining what he wants and so players become more fully rounded as a result. They, they learn to play in more than one one different way, more than one different position and you know, he he is prepared to to give younger players an opportunity. He seems to have, have great faith in younger players, He's, he takes risks, um, and everything you see of Martínez, I think is very impressive. I mean, I, I remember the game at Tottenham early in the season when they lost 1-0, just what, six weeks ago, two months ago, something like that, and you sort of thought, I mean, I remember thinking there now, well, that's probably their chance of the top four gone, and then Martínez was incredibly upbeat in the press conference saying, you know, we played really well today, we probably should have won that, we didn't, that happens, but if we keep playing like that, we will get in the top four. And if you're a player, that must be incredibly encouraging to hear. There's a manager being very sane, very calm, and saying, "Actually, that was that was fine. Keep doing that, and you'll get there." Um, and, and actually, you know, assessing the game, not just the results, which I think is it's a thing that all people in football, managers, players, journalists, fans find
3: difficult to do. Yeah, I mean I suppose when we saw Lukaku running to Martinez I, I don't know, he seemed to want to credit it with something maybe this, maybe he was saying yeah actually it was a better idea to play me on the right wing than I originally thought you were right about that Mr. Mr. Martinez but when, you, when you're when you a player and you listen to Arsene Wenger uh, imagine you're an Arsenal player, you're like Per Mertesacker or something like that and you hear Arsene Wenger saying uh, something like our big team defeats away from home have taken something of our charisma from the team is it fear? Is it belief? Is it confidence? What are you thinking if
2: you're a permanent attacker? Well, I mean, I think Bengal always speaks about you know, his sort of buzzword this season has been been nerves, that players get nervous. And that seems to me, a, a, you know, I mean, maybe it's true, but it seems to be a weird thing to keep coming back to. I mean, How
3: can you stay nervous for like nine months?
2: Like, well, quite. And, and why are they nervous every time they play a big team away from home? Well, I guess they get nervous because they keep losing to big teams away from home. So it becomes sort of self-fulfilling. Uh, but uh, you know, it's you look at Benger and it, you just see a failure to adjust again and again and again. I mean, it, I, I don't think it's a perfect measure by any means. But uh, I saw a stat this morning of the average time of the first substitution by teams in the Premier League. Now, this is slightly undermined by the fact that um, the, the the second latest team in terms of making substitutions is, is Liverpool. So clearly, making a substitution isn't really a sign of necessarily, of, of things going wrong. In
3: Liverpool's case, it, mi- it might have something to do with the fact that when you look at the bench, there isn't really a whole lot on that bench.
2: That's, yeah, it's that's possibly true, but Norwich make the latest first substitution. Now, you heard Norwich fans complaining repeatedly about Chris Heaton not being able to, to change the shape of games once they've started. Liverpool the next, which, as you say, maybe there's mitigating factors there. There's also, I guess, the case that Liverpool are often significantly ahead at half-time. They're very, very fast starters, so there's no need to change things. Uh, and Arsenal are third in that list, which I, I think does sort of chime with this sense that Dengar is either unable to, sh- to change the shape of games or has become unable to, to change the shape of games. And I think, you know, you know, as I was saying earlier, the fact that Martínez is prepared to experiment with the front three with Lukaku in a, in a non-obvious position out to the right in that suggests a greater imagination, a greater preparedness to, to do things that are different.
0: All right, Jonathan Wilson, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers, thanks. I don't know what you think of that Joey Barton point, Ken, that you should sign for a manager, Rather than a club. I, I, he's not really talking about a 32 year old here. At that stage, you're just doing whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like he's talking about a 20, 21 year old.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the problem with it, obviously, is that your manager isn't always going to be around. You know, what if you sign for a manager and then the manager gets sacked? Well, that's you know? Barton's or point. Or retires or something like that.
0: He retiring wouldn't be great, but the point, the, the example that he used was McCarthy that you sign, he, he, that you can essentially come under the wing of a manager. He yeah. will, if you're good enough, and you have a good enough relationship with him, he'll bring you elsewhere. Yeah. And so you see Kevin Nolan. Kevin Nolan's had a really good Premier League career. Largely, he's not a bad player, but largely on the basis following of Sam following Sam Adelaide around the place.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when you look at... Uh, I think Mourinho's done this a few times. Uh, Nuno Valente, didn't he? Bring him from Valeria to Porto. Certainly brought Carvalho from Porto to Chelsea. It's an imperfect
0: tactic, though, you think? Eto'o Eto
3: now is... is I mean, this is a bit different, though, because Eto'o's also signing for vast quantities of money. It's not just the magic of Jose Mourinho that he's chasing. But uh, it is true. You know, managers will develop their own. Uh, they, obviously, they've got their own little staff, um, the, a group of flunkies that goes around with them from club to club. Um, Brendan Rodgers was Jose Mourinho's flunky back in the day, and now he's, he's moved on in his own right. But why not, if, if, they also, if they have their coaches and their trainers and scouts and so on, um, it's, there's, no, there's no difference really with players. I mean, you can have your own players uh, also, and and I think every manager's got a couple of favourites. Look at Moyes, I suppose, with, with Fellaini. That's another great thing he did for Everton, by the way. He took Fellaini out of there. A player they possibly wouldn't have been able to use, funded all their new players that they bought, and, um, yeah, took him, took him straight out of the way. I mean... Greater love hath no man.
0: We're talking Chris Hewton now with Miguel Delaney. Miguel, he has been uh, one of the less surprising sackings in the Premier League. He's been one loss away from it for a while, but has tended to just about survive and get the result at the right time. But what do you think of the timing of it?
1: Um, I have to say, as you as you alluded to there, I'm more surprised they didn't do it sooner. Um, I think we, we've known for some time, going back to uh, a match they had against West Ham earlier in the season, that the Norwich hierarchy have been almost looking for the excuse to sack Uton, but there, wa- there was a certain amount of uh, resistance the, w- the one thing you would say now is so in that sense I think it's surprising they didn't act earlier the one thing now about this timing is it does make it lo- look more like an act of desperation but in saying that it's partially understandable I know this isn't kind of a, a common or a, you know it, it's not a view shared with too many when someone loses their job like this but I, I think it makes a certain amount of sense because if you look at Norwich's remaining five games four of them are horrific except for uh, next week's match away to Fulham, it win that they should be fine. It should, it, it's, it's one of those kind of real kind of juncture games in the relegation race. If they if they win that, they should do enough. But under Uton recently, it's four points from six games. They kind of looked like a bit of a moribund team, like kind of mar- something under O'Neill last season that they just needed some kind of jolt. And you would wonder whether just changing the mental dynamic of sacking a manager will do that.
0: Yeah, just to get people right up to speed with that fixture list that they have it's Fulham away and you mentioned the last four games Liverpool at home Man United away Chelsea away and Arsenal at home so absolute killer of a, a, a run in really and we've seen this happen with loads of clubs over the last few years in the Premier League Miguel where with five games sometimes with longer maybe eight or nine or ten games to go they bring in the new manager hope to get Uh, sudden impact and finish the season strongly and save themselves but given how hard the last four games are is this a different uh, dynamic we're seeing here where really they've gotten rid of Hewton they already have a replacement in place largely for this one game against Fulham you beat Fulham you're probably going to stay up because you would be eight points clear of them you lose to Fulham and you're probably going to go down because you're going to struggle for points in the last four games
1: Yeah uh, I I don't think there's any denying that it it looks like what it is or it is what it looks like sorry that it's basically a panic to last throw the dice but at the same time, that's not to say there isn't some logic to it. I mean, the, the whole idea of a new manager bounce, like I think there's, the evidence against it is 50-50, four, four is 50-50. Uh, but I, I think that just shows us in some cases it doesn't work. I mean, if you look at it from a, from a kind of a player's or a squad's point of view, and even uh, we've all been there in jobs of own, if you're in a situation where it's just not working and it's not right, and it's just, it's just flat, some sort of te- change can temporarily lift things to, to derive that response, which is sort of thing I'd imagine they're banking on um, for, for this Fulham match. And, and also, I mean, you, you, the other issue you mentioned there about the away form, which of course is very relevant given they're going to Craven Cottage. But because of the fact they have to go oh, and actually win a game now, I think there is a, a deeper issue from, from talking to people connected to the Norwich dressing room. There, um, There has been a growing concern, which I think may have played a large part in Uton eventually losing his job, about the fact that the team was so defensive that they, they seem more concerned about keeping the other team out rather than going and winning themselves. I think that's been reflected in both his lineups and how the season's gone, in that a lot of their decent attacking players haven't really performed as you would have, uh, would have expected. I mean, even look at, a, at a Hooligan, who's not had um, part, not, not really because of his own performance, because of how he's been used. He's not had the impact he did in the last campaign.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I mean that that was always for me a, a sort of mystifying aspect of of what Uton was doing there. Why, you know, how can you leave a player like that out? Um, you know when he's been such a good player for the club for, for a couple of seasons but um, I saw Neil Lennon was on Match of the Day 2 last night and they asked him about this well you're actually one of the main um, front runners and he said well you know I don't know if they'd he said the usual sort of uh, well it's always flattering to be linked jobs but it is a privilege it remains a privilege to for now be a Celtic employee Um <laughs> He said all that
1: convincing.
3: He, sa- he, he did sound as though he, he wasn't totally really out the prospect, but he said, I, I'm surprised that they would do it at this point of the season unless they've already got someone to come in. But they say in the statement that they've appointed um, the FA Youth Cup winning coach Neil Adams as first team manager. I mean, they say he's been appointed first team manager. Is he uh, going to be Norwich's man for the long term?
1: Well, I mean, that, I think that's why a lot of people, uh, the, the immediate response was. Um, that it was like Mick McCarthy and Terry Connery in 2011-12, that, uh, I mean, I think that, that that's possibly where they've, where they've heard because you would have expected, if they were to get rid of and to get that spark, they could have gone for a double effect. It's not just getting rid of a manager that wasn't quite working anymore. It was also bringing in someone that, that could galvanise them. And I think Fulham have actually eventually done it the right way. I mean, I think it's a pity for Fulham that they didn't employ McGath sooner because he's clearly had an effect on the squad. They look so much more organised they look solid, but while also posing a bit of a threat, um, we we don't know too much about Adam's career, other than um, he, he was once set up from by a rival manager that he'd never he never get beyond coaching under 12s. Um, i, I, I it, for me, I think they're doomed. I have to say.
3: You think Norwich are doomed? I
1: think I think I think I think Fulham will. I mean, you know, <laughs> you can play this at the end of the season. I could sound very foolish, yeah. but I think Fulham will beat them next week and then I, I just can't see where they're going to get points from in those last four games.
3: Well, they're five points, still five points ahead. I mean, Fulham, um, you know, Fulham have, have been picking up less than a point per game all season, so...
1: But I've started to change lately.
3: Yeah, I mean, do you then credit Felix Magath with uh, with inspiring this? Because, I mean, certainly when he arrived, all the talk was, well, Felix Magath will punish the players, he'll make them run around a lot, they won't like that. Um... Look at his glasses. You know that was sort of the general tone of of yeah. comment about. It. But actually, it, it appears that this um, triple Bundesliga winning coach knows a thing or two about uh, about getting a team to play football.
1: It would seem that way, yeah. Um, I think the problem with Fulham. I mean, I, I covered them a fair bit this year, and like for so long in the season, I, I think they were in a bit of an artificial place because I don't think they were as bad as most of the campaign has suggested. But they do, They didn't have, you know, a bloated squad a squad that didn't really have a kind of an identity about itself. And I think the problem with Martin Yole was, it, it almost nearly happens with every mid-table manager, that because they can't really go, they, they, because they eventually have to plateau because they don't have the resources to, to break a ceiling, he just starts to stagnate, loses the effect, and he just kind of falls away. And that's why I think you do see a fair turnover of managers at that level. Um, obviously, they didn't kind of react to that the best. They, they went through the whole the chaos with, with, with Mullenstein and that. But... You know, with that with that squad, it's almost like with, with that oddly put together squad, it's almost like as, as, as if Magath kind of just finally started to bash it into shape. And you, you can see a team structure there now. Um, and they don't give up easy goals in the way they were for the vast majority of the campaign.
0: Miguel, uh, we haven't mentioned Sunderland, who are sitting there right at the bottom of the table. Uh, they're two points behind Fulham. Uh, which means that they're is it five, seven points behind Norwich. Now, they have got three games in hand. I guess when you're fighting relegation, maybe the games in hand aren't quite as advantageous sometimes as they can be if you're if you're up near the top and you're likely to win all of those. But exactly, yeah. yeah are you are you giving Sunderland a chance at, if, they, if they were to win two of those three games in hand, suddenly they're possibly climbing out of the relegation zone and dragging someone like West Brom back in?
1: I'd give them a chance, but I'd say much less so than a few weeks ago. Uh, I've actually been a bit disappointed with the way they, with their last month, I mean, if, I, I watched them actually against Fulham. I was at that game. Uh, their four one win at Craven Cottage in January, and they looked like a properly solid mid table team. The one that we wouldn't have kind of just eventually cruise to, uh, to safety and have, a, and have one of those kind of easy seasons in the way maybe Southampton did last year. Um, but I mean, the way they've regressed, it, it's it's not just that actually they've been losing games. It's that they've been losing a lot of games where you th- you would think right if they win this they're okay. So it's kind of it's, you know it's it's further the, the, their own position a lot. Um, clearly, Poirier has something with Scott. I have seen from the cup runs, so you wouldn't completely rule it out. But I, I don't know. You, just, you you just worry about that regression. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I think they might have left themselves a bit too much to do, and also, but this, the season ends in five six weeks. So it's a lot of games to fit in in that time. Yep,
0: we'll leave it there. Listen, Miguel, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Thanks, lads. Yeah, the idea of having a load of games left and maybe too many games to fit in is. Maybe not an issue. I, I, if I was Sunderland, if I was a Sunderland player, I'd be happy enough, I think. Not with the position, I mean, at the bottom of the league, but look, we've got, what is it, they have left eight games or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's one after the other. You always hear the players, certainly you hear this in Gaelic football and hurling a lot because there can be a lot of breaks in the season. You always hear the players prefer to be playing than training that mm-hmm. you want to be playing every week. And in this case, okay, they'll be playing twice a week, really, for the next while, but you might as well get into the rhythm of it and pick up a few results and try and save your Premier League status, particularly at Sunderland, who apparently have, uh, co- signed into their contracts, pretty big pay cuts if they get relegated.
3: Yeah, um, that, that's been a club policy, I think, since Nile Quinn was there, that uh, they're going to take big, big cuts um, because otherwise you'd have to the situation where everyone else who works for the club has to lose their jobs and the club still goes massively into debt, paying the contracts of players who weren't actually good enough to keep it in the Premier League. I mean, the problem with Sunderland is that the games that they've got left are not easy games. I mean there's Tottenham away. I'm sure they'll be looking at that and thinking, well we've got to get something out of that. That's the first game coming up. Everton at home, Everton obviously didn't really well. Man City away, that's going to be a loss. Chelsea away, that's another zero. Um Cardiff City at home, okay, maybe three there. Man Man United away probably going to be zero. West Brom and Swansea at home. So if they're still in with a chance, with two games to go, they've got two winnable games at home, but winnable games for Sunderland, Yeah, what is a
0: winnable game for Sunderland? So who's staying up? This is a question that gets, the kind of question that gets asked quite a lot at the end of the match of the day.
3: I'm tempted to agree with Miguel, actually, because uh, I just think Norwich City are not going to get... I think, you know, it, it, it will depend. If, if Norwich lose at Fulham on the weekend then it's probably Fulham who are going to stay up and not Norwich. And I think the two teams behind them, Cardiff and Sunderland, are probably going to get relegated too. Okay. So it's not—it's a pretty dull prediction.
0: Well, it's fine, we'll leave it at that. its uh, It could be accurate. We do have a listen to the first show that we put out today. We've got Jerry Thorny and Berta Jackman talking about the British victory by Munster in the Heineken Cup. Also, a couple of things that they noticed being at the Leinster game in Toulon. A couple of indications they felt that maybe Leinster weren't as... Tuned in psychologically and physically as they could have been. Plus, we have Brian Murphy ahead of the US Masters, which starts on Thursday. Thanks very much for listening to Second Captain's Football, The Irish Times. Thank you again. Uh, thank you. Aunt. We'll chat to you later in the week. Take care. <laughs> it's fun,
2: is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those those boys.